0: Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Cultural Studies podcast. My name is Toby Miller, and my guest today is...
1: Dan Schiller.
0: Dan, it's great to see you, an old friend. We've just had a gossip catch-up session for about half an hour, which was really nice. But despite the fact that I had a chance to ask you how things are going, I'd like to revert to what I always do on these occasions, which is to ask you what's on your mind at the moment. What are you thinking about? What's preoccupying you?
1: Well, I I guess there are two interconnected things uh, politically that are occupying me. One is uh, the events in the Middle East, um, which I won't go into people more knowledgeable than I have had a lot to say. And I think that's interesting that a fair amount of what they have to say is actually reaching the U.S. population which is a change from the past because there is a substantial um, uh, pro-Palestinian public opinion developing in the United States, which I think is all to the good. That said, the events themselves are horrific. And um, uh, I think the the sooner that there can be a ceasefire uh, imposed on the Israelis, the better um so that's been occupying my my thought i, I read in the morning each day uh, to see a little bit of what's going on uh parentheses uh unlike raymond williams who has a statement somewhere saying in answer to a question from an interlocutor um if he lets uh, if he if he reads uh the guardian and uh the Times and the other papers in England. Um, first thing in the morning, he says, "Oh my goodness, no! I never let those people in the house before noon. <laughs> um, uh, I can't, um, I can't manage that feat. So uh, I'm reading the mainstream press early in the morning, uh, and the other thing that uh, occupies me." Uh, I I guess I'll tell by way of an appropriate anecdote, this having just been Christmas. The book that my brother gave me for Christmas is a new book out. It's an edited collection called Fascism in America. And um, that issue has been uh, giving me more sleepless nights than uh, um, I prefer. But I think that uh, the... um, The concern that I have is, again, more broadly shared, thankfully, Um, and I think that uh, it's not just about the possible election of Trump, a growing probability, in my opinion, but also um, in the... uh, um, Uh, Well, in in whichever party is elected, the mechanisms of social control and uh, what the Germans called Gleichschaltung under the Nazis, the coordination of cultural and social life uh, are deepening and extending. um, And we see it almost week to week. Um, And... uh, This is a very frightening prospect. So I'm thinking about that um, as a a near-term eventuality. Um, So not to be too uh, uh, depressed, I think there is also um, growing centrifugal force in American society, growing resistance. And um, there is... um, going to be discord about that just as there is discord about what's happening in the Middle East. And the discord in the Middle East is having an effect. So um, we can uh, also assume that it will have an effect on the um, possibility of authoritarianism in the United States. So uh, most of the things I'm thinking about.
0: As you know, Dan, one of the frustrations is that partly because of the spread of U.S. popular culture. People outside the United States, in many cases, think they know about it and understand it. And this can lead to the notion that the whole country is reactionary and always has been, Um, which is not at all true, as you well know, and as some of your work has documented. And I am always trying to say to people who've been there for two years, if they're BBC correspondents who come back to Britain knowing nothing but talking a lot and to people who go there for six minutes or just watch television, there's a long deep geographically spread tradition of radicalism that can't be forgotten, shouldn't be forgotten and continues. And some of that is part of no doubt what you're describing as a a mood in public opinion over the Palestinians situation. And, On the other side, yes, there is this awful reactionary tendency, but even though the Supreme Court is monstrous, there are plenty of conservative lawyers, constitutional lawyers, who are utterly horrified by Trump and by what their own side is doing. And there have got to be powerful plutocrats who don't like this because they know that it won't end well for them.
1: Yes. As well as other forces uh let's say lower down on the status hierarchy uh, who have uh, um, memories and affinities that uh, are kind of uh, cast in a different way um, and I think one of the uh, one of the primary questions is whether there can be somebody on the left. Uh, emerging or groups on the left more likely who are able to successfully uh move in and uh sort of take over the right wing impetus that has been successful recently uh let's say in um uh, in the america first context and uh seizing that impetus and casting it in a different direction so i mean while trump and uh and much of the republican party have been effective in speaking to disaffected working people's communities and saying what the hell do we need to be in ukraine for and the left is uh, been unsuccessful in doing this uh or at least you know um so far, that's what it seems like. I think it's only a matter of time before uh, left-wing groups are able to come back in that space and say, wait, what What the hell is this? I mean, the Republicans are taking this issue and saying, um, you know, they're able to speak for working people. They know nothing about working people. They have no affinity with working people's needs. They're speaking against working people's interests. We are the ones who are always historically able to do that. And we're now going to take that to its natural conclusion and say the foreign policy of the United States needs to be set against the military and against the militaristic uh, impulse to go out and spend uh, tax monies, fighting wars that should not be prosecuted at all, and certainly not in the name of American working people's interests.
0: Yes, that's the irony, isn't it? That the liberal adventurism represented by the American war in Vietnam turned into a a Republican desire to intervene that uh, took hold Obviously, under Nixon, Reagan, the Bushes, but now that's all either denounced or forgotten in the name of a kind of isolationism.
1: Absolutely.
0: And it's it's ironic because bits of that isolationism I kind of agree with. Uh, in yes. that you know the what good did the United States ever do in Latin America with its endless coups? What on earth? Who benefited from any of that, for example, right? Um, At the same time as it is, it's interesting when you get meeting points between leftists who want US disengagement from military adventurism with wings of the Republican Party that want the same. The big difference is the Republicans still want hundreds of millions of dollars wasted on the military every year. Even right. as they don't want to see it spent outside the United States.
1: Yep. No, I mean that's the contradiction in the Republican position. And uh I think uh that would be in a way the Achilles heel if there was even a you know a, a representation of a left position in a meaningful way in the federal state, um that could go after it. I mean, Sanders Uh, has been up to a point willing to do that, but not on the scale that needs to be uh, um, represented. Uh, You know, the the military budget needs to be chopped by uh, 90%. Well, we
0: remember, Dan, the end of the Cold War when there was supposed to be a peace dividend. Remember the peace dividend? (laughs) It was going to go into health and housing and education. You're smiling, I'm laughing. I mean... No one talks about that
1: anymore. No, the peace dividend, uh, you know, went out the window. And yet you can read some historians talking about it, mainstream historians, as if it actually was realized. Um, really? You know, I
0: didn't know that. Oh,
1: Good grief. You can see peace dividend, peace dividend. But um, no, I mean, the peace dividend went completely out the window. And, uh, that was because the U.S. determined that there was a continuing role for NATO. And, um, and then all of the things that NATO extended into NATO is, I mean, even they never refer to NATO by its actual name anymore because that would be a misnomer. North Atlantic. Treaty organization. It's nowhere near the North Atlantic Treaty Organization anymore. It's in Japan. It's you know in the uh, Indo-Pacific. It's it's all over the world. It's like the world treaty organization, and uh, so that's an indicator where we're at. They built NATO back up, and not you know. Also, they've got groups in um, uh, in in Europe itself joining, as you know, in the context of what they call Russian aggression into Ukraine, um, that uh, uh, now find themselves, in terms of their domestic policies, wanting to join this uh, paramount sea. Um, I'm actually feeling very sympathetic to Erdogan in Turkey, uh, who's holding up the Swedish uh, membership into into NATO. I, I, he's horrif- horrifying in other respects, but in this one way, he's a fly in the ointment, and uh, that seems to me to be worth mentioning.
0: I uh, I recently recorded a podcast with Burçe Celik, uh, whose
1: um, yeah,
0: I think whose work has been published in your series, maybe.
1: Yes, we just uh, published her book that uh, just came out.
0: Yeah. And uh, she's a former colleague of mine before the place where she works got rid of me and a few other people. And, mm-hmm. you know, I was thinking afterwards as we were talking about the transition from the Ottoman Empire and that whole group of what were called young Turks, but not just in Turkey, right, but kind of around the world, those macho modernizers who were sort of my heroes around the world, you know, like NASA and Nehru. Uh, These guys who are macho monsters, but were incredible secular figures in deeply religious societies, trying to make their way between the Soviets and the United States, how amazing they were. But thinking about how Turkey has so interestingly navigated this stuff, you know, the, in a sense, radical Islamic country that is one of Israel's most reliable allies, right? I mean, wow. It's so yeah, interesting. I, it is. And on I that mean, margin of Europe, Asia, the so-called Middle East, you know, it, you can see why it's so obsessively an object of strategic interest for the Anglo world, even as they carefully keep it out of the headlines as much as possible.
1: Yeah, that's true. I mean, it's been a, obsessively interesting for 100 years, more, Um for the uh, Anglo world, and uh, uh, and they've navigated for that long too. Um, and, you know, a parenthesis on that, uh, Turkey was the sort of principal um, country for the analysis of so-called modernization in communication studies with Daniel Lerner. Um, and uh, anyway, Lots of byways to explore on this. Absolutely.
0: Uh, And uh, interesting, uh, also parenthetical note, my friends in Sweden tell me that there is zero press coverage of any alternative to joining NATO. You know, this is a must. It's an absolute requirement for security and continuity of their way of life. I mean, really, nobody can get a voice against
1: this. I mean, I know that, To a shift over to Finland, uh, the response, I think, totally predictably to Finland joining NATO is that the Russians have now opened or are now opening uh, a major military, uh, uh, not a base exactly, but a, a unit of their military command on the Finnish border. So whereas before there was not one, now that Finland, which... I, I didn't realize this, but um, the Finnish border is 18 miles from St. Petersburg. Mm-hmm. So, with that sort of distance, it, it, how could they not order uh, a military command on the Finnish border? So, to, I mean, to
0: protect it, Ayn Rand's birthplace.
1: <laughs> there you go. <laughs> well, I mean, it, you know, I mean, we we're talking about another ratcheting up of tension. Yeah.
0: Well, Dan, if I can move a little, move the conversation a little bit towards some of your field, which we could call the history and political economy of communications and culture, particularly communications. I wanted to ask you about something that occurred to me very much in uh, starting to read, but I haven't finished your latest book. You probably never will. It reminds me of a tendency within political economy, which you avoid in the book, of a kind of leftist functionalism where we've all gone to hell in a handbasket, the state and the corporations control everything, and the conflictual base to Marxism is eviscerated from such accounts. You know, when we put up diagrams, charts of ownership, And we look at what the laws say and we see the predominant success of state and corporate, not just America, but everywhere. It can be what sometimes people call demoralizing and depressing. But you talk about the problem of top-down research in the book. And the need to think things through from the bottom up and allowing conflict to have its place. I wondered if you could just comment on that, on whether there is a sort of leftist functionalism in some political economy and what you were trying to do in the book.
1: Of course, um, this is going to be a, a pretty major point of discussion. So if you don't mind, I, it, it'll take me a little while to get into this. Um I had written a previous book on telecommunications and a book before that on the uh, American newspaper. Uh, And they were quite different projects. The American newspaper book uh, was full of conflict. Uh, It was about the rise of uh, um, objectivity in the American press in the 19th century. And it was... um, It was full of the social conflict uh, that boiled through the society um, in the middle decades of the 19th century. Um, And there was a lot of historiography being written when I was writing that book, very exciting new work that showed how class relations in the United States were altering. And then I got my first job Uh, in the United States um, because my very first job had been at the University of Leicester in England. Um, And um, that changed some of my um, approaches to communications. But um, I came back to the United States and I got a job at Temple University in a department of radio, TV, film. And my colleague said openly to me, you're a student of 19th century television. And that was a cue that I needed to work on contemporary issues rather than continuing to do such outdated historical work. This is a tenure hint. Yeah. And there was a course. Everybody worked with courses that nobody else shared. And if there wasn't such a course, you couldn't. Um, this is on graduate courses. You couldn't get a graduate course. So I found a course nobody had taught for a while called "New Technology in the Mass Media," which looked right up my alley for the purposes of vaulting into the late 20th century. And um, I adapted it to telecommunications, which nobody at this department of radio, television, film, had any concern about, (laughs) nor interest in. And I didn't know anything about it either, but I determined I was going to learn about it. Because uh, nobody could effectively know what I was doing if I did that. And we were very close. I was in Philadelphia to Washington, D.C., and I could take the Metro liner or just the train down to the Federal Communications Commission library and work with primary sources down there, mm-hmm. which I did a lot. And I became pretty quickly up to speed on the most recent major dockets, they called them, or proceedings that the FCC was um, uh, opening on uh, different issues. So I was following the sort of state of play of big uh, proceedings. And by doing this for a year and a half and teaching on it, I effectively laid the groundwork for a book that I wrote quickly called Telematics and Government. And that book uh, laid the groundwork for a really major revision of, um, I think, theory and understanding of what was going on in American telecommunications policy that would later be more widely summarized under the term liberalization and deregulation. And the argument I made was that um, those terms, liberalization, deregulation, um, camouflaged a change in the center of gravity of telecommunications policy um, to expedite and strengthen the interests of the biggest users of telecommunications, big corporate users like banks, energy companies, um, and uh, uh, manufacturers over the interests of AT&T, the biggest provider of telecommunications in the country. Everybody else was saying AT&T was the monopolist. It was the biggest powerful uh, company in the world. It had always gotten its way. And liberalization was occurring as regulators were seeing the light about free market economics and were chipping away at its monopoly. I was saying, no, that's not what was happening. Regulators were deferring to the concrete interests of business users. And I had chapter and verse from having gone to all of these dockets in the FCC library. This was an account that was happening, uh, as you say, at the level of government uh, regulators and powerful corporations. Um, I thought it was an extremely persuasive and documented account, nevertheless, but it was occurring in boardrooms and the offices of government government, um, functionaries. There was no room for the uh, working class, although in my own uh, um, interest, I, I will say, that this was occurring under late Carter, early Reagan. And this was a time when the working class was very much on the defensive. I finished the book, um, and there's other stories to tell about the reception of the book that are interesting, but leaving those aside to get to your question. Two things happened. Uh, I was working with Janet Wasco, Vinnie Mosco, and for a couple of years, Dallas Smythe at Temple University. And it was a very rich milieu, which at the time, uh, we all thought, oh, this is great. This is how it's always going to be. And none of us thought this is the last time in our careers we're ever going to have this kind of a milieu. Well, maybe Dallas did. But uh, we did and Vinny and Janet and I. Well,
0: um, Dallas Smythe had been blacklisted for being a red before.
1: Right? Yes, I mean he knew better than you know the <laughs> young turks to, <laughs> you know, um, thought. But it was very rich. I mean, we were exchanging ideas. Vinny told me when he read the manuscript of Telematics and Government, he said. Have you ever thought about trying to extend this analysis back historically? Maybe you could try to think about how this came to pass. I mean, he he really admired the book, I think it would be fair to say, but um, he wanted to know more about what were the conditions of possibility for this. And then something else happened, which was that I got asked by a small militant West Coast Canadian telecommunications union to testify on their behalf to prevent deregulation in the Canadian telecommunications market, um, which was lagging slightly behind the United States. And I worked with the Canadian telecommunications union. It was called the TWU. Telecommunication Workers Union. So, only about 11,000 members. They were a small union based in British Columbia and militant. And I, I was bowled over when I started to meet the representatives of the union the president, the research director, and the business agent were the main people I interacted with, and their l- lawyer to prepare the testimony. And it was utterly different from the business unionism that has prevailed in the United States since the 1940s. I mean, they had a vision of social unionism. They had occupied the telephone exchange in um, Vancouver just a couple of years before prevented service while they defended their own objectives for um, um, the union. Uh, and so they, they really had a different MO, both tactically and in terms of long-run um, goals for what telephone service should be and should not be. And they were intent on defending against deregulation in Canada. And I did everything I could to try to help in that. And uh, it was just an eye-opening experience. And in the context of what we're talking about, it convinced me that the business unionism that had existed in the United States since the late 1940s might not be something that had always existed. And that I needed to look deeper to do a history of what Vinnie had asked me to do, which is the conditions of possibility for um, telecommunications development in the United States. Long-winded answer. So I began to do it with no intention of writing a full-scale history of um, United States telecommunications from the beginning, but I wanted to chip away. I wanted to just start doing a little bit. So I started going to archives and I started, um, working in bits and pieces of it. Um, and I'm going to give it back to you in a minute to see if you want to keep exploring this because I can do that. Or if you want to push me in another direction, but, um, I started looking at archives and I started realizing that previous historians of telecommunications, because I started doing this in 1983, and there was not a lot of telecommunications history being written uh, at that time in the United States. And I I started realizing that um, you had to start looking outside the archives um, at AT&T, and you had to start looking outside the accustomed places in order to do anything approaching a history that could get, could get, and I still wasn't convinced, towards what workers were looking to do at any given time uh, with the U.S. telecommunication system.
0: Well, I guess this gets to leads into a further question that's a follow up. What were the resources that you were able to tap into beyond the archives in order to get an answer to that quandary?
1: Well, uh, again, I'll be a little more long winded. Um, let's start with the archives. Uh, previous analysts had contented themselves with the AT&T archive, which is absolutely massive, which existed at the AT&T headquarters at that time at 195 Broadway uh, in New York City. And those archives are totally indispensable. Now they're split. um, And there's one of them in New Jersey and the other one's in Texas and San Antonio. Um, And you have to go there. But like all archives, you're totally dependent on the archivists. And I found um, an archivist who was extremely helpful. And I found stuff at that archive that was uh, went beyond what um, I might otherwise have expected to get. Incidentally, I met at that archive in the mid-1980s Venus Green, who was um, a... Um, doctoral student working at Columbia University. And she was doing uh, work that turned into an exceptionally valuable book uh, called Race on the Line, after she had produced it as a doctoral dissertation. And that book is probably uh, the single best example I can give you of uh, another book that took history from below uh, within the telephone industry in the United States So I heartily commend it to people who are interested in this field. Um, And she's looking specifically at the experience of African-American workers in the telephone industry. And she had previously been uh, um, um, an employee of New York telephone for something like 10 or 11 years before she went back to graduate school um, and had a very, very deep knowledge of the uh, practices of the telephone industry. Anyway, um, outside of AT&T um, and outside of the Federal Communications Commission, there are a lot of government archives that needed to be consulted, post office archives in particular. But um, the presidential libraries in the United States are an incredible resource for looking. And I found a ton of useful stuff but you have to build up knowledge to make effective use of them. And then um, there are other archives beyond that. The Tamaman Institute at NYU has um, incredibly valuable material on uh, labor and working class history, which I exploited Um The State Historical Society of Wisconsin has material um, which gets us towards even more open-ended records. um, And there are other places as well. But beyond archives, to go to the heart of your question, I started to realize that as historians have known for a long time, um, you need to get to ephemera um, because, you know, some of the cultural forms that ordinary people have used relied upon. For example, let's say in a strike, um, Some of the forms that are used are circulars, broadsheets, pamphlets, things that are just uh, not seen as material that's going to find austerity, but that's used in the spur of the moment to rally fellow workers or to uh, circulate information that's going to be used the next day. We're going to meet at the following place to have a rally. We're going to put up a um, a billboard. We're going to put up um, a circular on telephone poles, things like that. Well, where would you find such stuff? Yeah. Um, sometimes it's in archives, but sometimes it isn't and so i began to realize that radical antiquarian bookstores were a source that could be tapped and you never know you know if you're going to find stuff or what you're going to find but there's a wonderful radical antiquarian bookstore in san francisco called Boherium, um in the mission and i became friends with uh or at least on very good terms with uh, the people that run that store and i started you know i got they have a, a wants list and I, I said okay anything having to do with the post office the telegraph or the telephone if you get anything i want to know about and i got to the point because i would buy stuff from them that before they even got something on the wants list they'd sell they'd, they'd send me an email uh, and I'd say, Dan, because uh, they have scouts that go out into the greater Bay Area and looking at new collections that they're going to acquire. And they'd say, okay, I've just found a um, a circular um, about uh, uh, was in the Western Union strike from 1946. Are you interested in this circular for $12? Mm-hmm. I'd say yes, and then they'd send it to me. And so I have a, I don't know if you can see it. But here, I can't get that one here. Here's uh here's just an example, the first one that comes to mind. Mm-hmm. It's not particularly important in it's right, but here's something I got from them.
0: Long lines, Federation voice.
1: Yeah, it's just a a new agreement in front of the National Telephone Panel. So this was a government panel, uh, which is uh, a, an agreement with one of the uh, units of the the union that was in existence before the Communication Workers of America, this is from 1945, Mm -hmm. and I got this from Valerian. Wow, the new agreement. Yeah, so in other words, this is it's not quite ephemera, but I didn't get this anywhere else but from Valerian. Right. I I would start to buy things from them sight unseen just because they... uh, They would tell me that they had it. So two other examples. One of them didn't make it into my book. This was quite expensive. Uh, And it's something I'm going to commend to you as a parenthesis. This is the San Francisco and Oakland Chinese telephone directory. Oh, wow. Yeah, 1950 or so. This cost about $250. Gosh, um, but there is, I mean, I'm not sure I'm kept up, but if it hasn't been done, there is a wonderful dissertation to be done about the Chinese telephone exchange in San Francisco. I don't think anybody's ever done a dissertation on it. And it would be, a, a, you'd have, obviously, to be a Chinese speaker. Um, but, uh it would unlock a window on the Chinese community in San Francisco um, that we need. Um, Here's something else. Um, News and notes, local 9490 considers election of stewards. I believe this is on the West Coast. Ash meet Ma Bell. I don't know <laughs> if you can see that. Oh wonderful. So these are all things just ephemera. Yeah. And some of it's not ephemera. That I, I got I got many dozens of um publications that are in a sense um mostly irretrievable. Except from radical antiquarian bookstore sources
0: that are not really part of the formal record of big institutions,
1: yeah, and some of them they are in archives, but a lot of them aren't mm. I could find, and this stuff comes as close Look. as you can get bar oral history uh to what uh working people were saying and thinking in different moments of uh, often conflict with the telecommunications industry. Um, And it shows a slice of consciousness and experience that is very much at odds with the top-down record. And often important, in my view, because uh, it often divulges wishes, demands, thinking that cuts in a direction that shows people did have... um, a vision of telecommunication system development that did not coincide with the outcomes that are taken to be natural or um definitive or uh just those that winnowed out as the ones we got And their choices might have followed a different pattern. A different path.
0: So just so people can follow up on this, the book that is the product of so much of this amazing research is called Crossed Wires, The Conflicted History of U.S. Telecommunications from the Post Office to the Internet. We're speaking right at the end of 2023, and it came out, I guess, about 10 months ago, Dan. Would that be right?
1: Yeah, and, February, March.
0: And some of those alternatives that you examine are alternatives that would have thought about and derived from the theories and analyses of Native Americans, union workers, African Americans, etc. right? That, in other words, what I think you've tried to do here is uh, not just give a lamentation for f- f- moments of, Tragedy for the conventional white industrial proletariat, although that's there, it should be, but also to think about the other social groups which can be involved also in the industrial proletariat that form the US working class and how they were systematically excluded, but not for want of having ideas or desiring interventions. Is that
1: fair to say? Yes, very much. I mean, what I'm trying to show is that working people of every um, kind, uh, African Americans, whites, Native Americans, to some extent earlier on, 19th century, um, Mexican Americans, Puerto Ricanos, um, had ideas in their heads about how telecommunications ought to be structured or restructured and that in some cases, repeatedly, they acted on those ideas to try to bring to the attention of policymakers um, how telecommunications should be restructured to make them more equal, to make them more just. So, for example, in a relatively more recent context, in the 1960s and 1970s, Um, Mexican-Americans, African-Americans insisted that there should be equal employment opportunity in telecommunications. And they actually succeeded in this. And they used the public utility framework that then existed in telecommunications law. And they they broadened it to make it more effective uh, through legal cases. That were brought to bear on the Federal Communications Commission. Um, they um, they use legal uh, socio legal instruments, you might say, to broaden equal employment opportunity in telecommunications. I'm I'm simplifying here a great deal, uh, and in so doing, they um, uh, they made AT and T accept. Um, affirmative Action. Uh, they they compelled AT&T to become an Affirmative Action employer. And this was the first uh, um, great victory of Affirmative Action in the United States, and it created a template for Affirmative Action across corporate America. So it was not just limited to telecommunications, but it had a ripple effect across big business in the United States. Now, um, this, I think, was a tremendous uh, win for uh, workers in the United States, particularly workers of color. But it wasn't even limited to that because at the same time, Mexican-Americans in these same proceedings said, there's another side to this problem, which is that service provision of the telephone in the United States, there are no Spanish-speaking operators. (laughs) And Spanish-speaking operators that uh, we have are not allowed to use Spanish in dealing with customers so that we have the lousiest telephone service in the world for people who happen to be Spanish speakers in the United States. And they were um, uh, successful in winning Spanish speaking service provision in the United States. Now, that was another huge change in the public utility model of service provision in the United States. It's no accident that this was occurring, you know, in the uh, early to mid-1970s and the broadening of the public utility model that this uh, change in affirmative action and in service provision uh, brought was then countered as you get uh, the right-wing ascension by efforts to deregulate and liberalize telecommunications. But that came about in response to the victory of uh, public utility advocates.
0: So the rise of neoliberalism is not just a response to the presumed failure of Keynesianism in the macroeconomy, it's also a response to successful working class struggle.
1: Getting us back to the conditions of possibility. Yeah were uh, what I was talking about at not the
0: So, Dan, um, we're coming towards the end of our allotted time. I have two questions I'd like to ask you, one of which I think can be answered pretty quickly, the other which may not be, but take your time. But after those, I'd like to give you the opportunity to add anything that we haven't touched on or we think you want to say more, or, although I don't edit, to subtract anything we've said. Who knows what you'd like to do? So the first question relates to what you said about giving testimony on behalf of communications workers in BC, British Columbia, in Vancouver. And it's about your work as a public intellectual, Uh, an overworked phrase that is problematic, but work that you do and have done that isn't just for, uh, you know, (laughs) acafuckendemics like me. And I'm thinking of uh, a site that you co-run with Xinjiang Information Observatory. But I'm also thinking of work you've done with uh, Le Monde Diplomatique in its uh, publication. And there may be other work that I'm not aware of. So my first question is to ask you about that kind of intervention and what you've sought to do
1: there. Well, I think... Uh... In both cases, I've wanted to try to broaden the reach of critical scholarship in communications to uh, make it available to wider uh, readerships. Um, I'm not sure in the case of our information observatory that it's as yet as uh, wide as we'd like, but um, we hope over time to, to broaden the reach uh and um and we are trying um the le Monde diplomatique was a great um opportunity and i haven't written for them in a a number of years now at least three or four i can't remember may well be more than that because time slips away but there i have had great good fortune and people have uh, they have editions all over the world and so it's it's gotten uh, quite a bit of attention, but um, yeah, I mean, it's, I think uh, uh, it's a great opportunity. And I think more of us should try to do it because, you know, there, as, as uh, uh, my father used to say, you know, uh, radical communication scholars aren't three deep at every position. So we need to try (laughs) to leverage our, uh, capacity and I think the work you're doing, uh, Toby, with the um do you still call it Podbean? That's
0: the name of the host of the podcast.
1: I see. Well it's uh it's great that you're doing these podcasts and I imagine that they do get um seen and listened to and I think that's wonderful. It's a tremendous educational uh you know, uh, experience for people. Well, thanks. Uh, I'm,
0: I'm actually, one one in particular, which is with a guy who calls himself the Black Russian. This is because his heritage is Indigenous Australian and Soviet. So he's a filmmaker. He calls himself the Black Russian. <laughs> and, um, that's had one and a half thousand downloads, actually. Wow. Uh, wow. Now, whether that's because he got every relative in Russia and Australia it's a download, I don't know. But, yeah, thanks for that. So my last question before throwing it over to you, Dan, is to ask you about the place of theoretical work in political economy, because we've talked today about archival and, to a certain extent, oral historical efforts. But there's got to be a way in which a theoretical or methodological inclination allows you to say that's relevant. That's not relevant. That's for something else. Does that fit my socialist mindset? If not, do I discount it? Do I include it? Do you know what I mean?
1: Yeah. Well, I mean, this is a recurrent discussion I have with various people uh, and it is um, worth saying that I, I wrote a book called Theorizing Communication, which was um you know fully theoretical, I guess. But um I'm I'm sort of on the historical side of the is it history or is it theory um that we need to be doing most of the time. Um and I say that with the idea that uh history often defies theory. Um, history is full of empirical material that uh, sometimes doesn't fit very neatly into (laughs) somebody's theoretical apparatus. And I think that's just inevitable and it's just how it is. And then the theory has to be accommodating and has to uh, be rearranged to try to make sense of what the new historical information suggests. Um that said um the primary excuse me <laughs> the primary um, issue that we've touched on that needs to be um thought about this way is how to account for history from below with theoretical uh, apparatus uh in political economy and Um, I'm not comfortable, for other reasons, with autonomous Marxism. So that leaves me with a difficulty uh, on the theoretical side. Um, I go back, and I think you mentioned this early on in the discussion, to um, a version of originary Marxism, which emphasizes relations of production over um, forces of production uh, kinds of arguments um, meaning i I'm not as oriented to the third international type. Um, approaches that emphasize how at a certain point uh, technology um, butts up against the um, mode of production and then the um, mode of production gives way. I'm not I've just never been drawn to those Mm -hmm. uh, kinds of arguments. I am drawn to arguments that focus on relations of production and how the relations of production are primary in a Marxian schema and that goes back to graduate school days uh, and um, you know arguments at pubs or I should say bars because it was in the United States uh, I, Susan Davis, and I, and um, a very close friend from graduate school, Marcus Raddick, where I used to um, be at bars on a weekly basis, at least, talking about um, these issues, and that carried forward for a bit. Um, with reference to the British Marxist historians. We were always drawn to, um, in particular, Christopher Hill because of Marcus's focus on um, colonial history Um, and the tradition of... um, not just working class, but plebeian history Mm -hmm. and um, the traditions of cultural and class uh, activity. So I'm not sure where I go with this, but the relations of production and the, before it was named as autonomous Marxism, it just existed as historical self-activity. Mm -hmm. So I wouldn't want to give it the framework of autonomous Marxism, but just the self-activity of plebeian um, uh, groups. And thinking about that in reference to struggles against dominant forces in society. And I guess that's enough theory for me.
0: <laughs> well, no, I think I I I think I hear what you're saying, Dan. And I guess it's to say that as Christopher Hill does, and I was lucky enough in my final year at college, that he actually walked into a seminar I was taking and just talked. Oh, really? About four hours, yeah. And he wasn't even affiliated with the school. But you can imagine we were just dumbstruck when it was question time. <laughs> we didn't know what to say. Oh, boy. But uh, there's that history from below to coin a phrase or to use an overly worn phrase that needs to be told, but it doesn't have to be romanticized to the level of making it the totality of the story, which is what some people would accuse, you know, Negri and compatriots of of doing. although that said, I I like the work of Antonio Negri, I lament his recent passing. And I think like a lot of people, Bruno Latour would be another Michel Foucault, another, he's a lot better than his followers. <laughs> uh, just parenthetical remark before throwing it open to you, Dan. So the book you mentioned earlier, Theorizing Communication, I think that's 1996 right. from Oxford. And mm. one of the people that I think I see influencing a lot of that book is Raymond Williams, whom you mentioned earlier. And, of course, Williams, who started out like Stuart Hall, as a left levisite, you know, per Richard Hoggett. I mean, these guys were all about uplift and why if the working class could only understand jazz instead of crap, then, you know, they would become the inheritors of the world. Uh, those guys moved from left Leavisism to a more fully throated Marxism. At least that's my account of Williams. That you So by the 70s, I think he's really developing this stuff uh, beyond his early Arnoldian Levisite tendencies. yeah. Um, But anyway, Theorizing Communication is a terrific book, and I would urge people to track it down. They won't find it only in uh, leftist archival bookstores in the Bay Area.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, it's hard to find now. But, uh, yeah, well, I I struggled with that book for about 10 years, and uh, I rewrote it fully top to bottom three times. It was a hard book to write, but it started out as an uh, effort to come to grips with uh, sort of like culture and society, if I might say so. It's uh, come to grips with the introductory seminar at the Annenberg School that I'd had to take. And um, it was. uh, It moved on from there. Yeah, Williams was a crucial intellectual influence for me. And um, I I kind of came to know something of what I thought about things by coming to grips with what he had written over the course of his career. And I, I remember his, in my own, you know, not just shock, but sense of loss when I learned when I was at UCLA that he had died mm. um, at, at a very young age, I thought. Um, and what a, a sense of. You know, gosh, he was on the cusp of—I thought—a fundamental reevaluation. You know, he he had kind of got almost all the way there, but he hadn't put his full stamp on where he had gotten to. He had been ostracized. I thought. I even went to Jesus College at Cambridge once to see what it looked like. Um, I didn't come to any new. <laughs>
0: Profound insights. I mean, it would have been interesting also had he he died in the beginning of 1988. I think had he lived into the post Cold War period, and also had he been in a in, in an opportunity to have more duking it out with Terry Eagleton, because he's clearly the Oedipal figure uh, to the max for Eagleton, uh, yeah. who also is I think a truly great Marxist analyst, actually.
1: Yeah. Well, I have admiration for Eagleton, but I think you're right that that's the eatable figure, and, yeah,
0: all the time. Hence, trying to be Irish in order to meet Williams' Welshness. I think.
1: Oh, that's interesting. I never thought of that.
0: Yeah. Well, I, you know, it's I've never met any of these guys, but it's my
1: mad amateur guessing. So I wrote to, I wrote to Williams in about 1974. Uh-huh. Um, asking if I could study with him. Um, And I got back a form saying, I don't have time, go away. Uh, Nice. But but I was hoping. uh...
0: (laughs) Yes, well, that's the other side to the great man in academic history sometimes, isn't it? Um, So, Dan, I'd like to invite you now to add anything that you think we've we glossed over too quickly or we haven't mentioned but perhaps could.
1: Well, I mean, inevitably there are any number of things that could be brought back, um, expanded, um, and with luck maybe we'll have a chance to do more. But the one thing I, I think we did give a little short shrift to is um, there's a really room for oral history, and um it's the window is closing because of the age of one occupational group that just still might be consulted uh there there are there are very um elderly those few who might still be talked to but you know telephone operators have again um a window on not just their own experience, but the practice of communities that I think is unique. And um, for anybody who might be interested in telecommunications history or a wider cultural history into the culture of the telephone, um, there is a little bit of oral history in this area. But um, at the remove we now stand, it's... um, it, there are a few telephone operators left, and any graduate students who have an interest in this would be advised to go to an Hammer and Tong now, um, and ask about the experience of. Uh, there are a couple of strikes in the late '60s, the early '70s. There are other actions. In the 70s and 80s, when there were still operators, you could talk about issues of automation. You could talk about um, just on-the-job activities. You could talk about any number of things. What was it like in their communities? How did they experience disasters? How did they act during disasters on behalf of the people that they were um, connected with? You could look at urban versus rural operators. Uh, There are any number of such things, but I think oral history is um, uh, a unique resource for um, unlocking those kinds of topics.
0: I couldn't agree more. And, of course, we're getting some of that with people recording the experiences of workers in call centers, but that's much more in the contemporary, and I think it's a brilliant idea to seek to record the experiences of these people, many, many, many of whom were women, I presume the vast majority.
1: Yes, absolutely. Even after the affirmative action uh, was set in in the early, mid-70s. Yeah, I mean, it was vastly disproportionate for years after that. But uh, yes, the gender issues are uh, waiting to be uh, still looked at more, although uh, Lana Rackow did a, work on that and uh there are others but yes
0: well thank you very much dan it was wonderful to chat to you again we worked out that we did this would have been over 10 years ago in portland oregon and it's always wonderful to sit with you to learn from you and so on and i hope you will come back to the pod maybe in concert with some fellow travelers
1: yeah i'd love it and toby uh you know, go on with uh, a spring in your step and your mind on freedom.
0: Thank you, Dad.